I want to start a new series of studies this morning to go over for, I don't know, maybe the next month or two. And this was prompted by a leading from the Lord on Friday morning. He gave me the word earlier this week. I was washing some fresh raspberries uh, in our sink, uh, ones that we had bought because our raspberry bush has not bloomed yet. And as I'm washing them, even though we got them on a good sale, I'm thinking, man, these are so expensive, but I sure do love them. And I was thinking, these will go bad really quick, right? You know that with fresh fruit, that if you don't take care of it, it goes bad really quick. When I was growing up in Pennsylvania, my family and I used to go out and pick wild raspberries. And that's one of my favorite memories from childhood. Uh, There was nothing better than sitting down at the dinner table and my mom would place a huge bowl just mounded with raspberries and then she'd take the sugar. This was before we knew about food labeling. And she would across the top and it would just be like a glaze. How many have had raspberries with glazed sugar? There's nothing better, right? It makes you want some right now. I just, just that. You don't even need ice cream, though. If somebody offers me ice cream, I will eat it. But <laughs> there's nothing like the flavor of that. There's nothing like the freshness of that when you just have that fresh raspberry with just a little bit of sugar. And as I'm washing these raspberries and kind of having all these thoughts in my head, the Spirit brought to mind the biblical principle of spiritual fruitfulness and what it means to bear fruit. And then just as quickly, he really spoke to my heart and said, and I'm not being mystical here, I, I heard this in my, in my heart, said there are five kinds of fruit. And just as importantly, there are five kinds of spiritual fruit. And you need to study that and teach that. So that's how we get to this passage in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about spiritual fruit. This is right at the onset of his ministry, and he is speaking to a huge crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We've got a little uh, picture of that in our heads. We've seen that before in our studies. And right from the outset of his ministry, as he's beginning to speak and his ministry is becoming more public, he gives this long message, the longest message we have, from Jesus in all of Scripture. And he sets up at least six clear spiritual distinctions. Now let me just run through them quickly, but as this is just kind of a side thing, but just get a feel for what he's saying. He compares the humble and the proud. He compares his disciples and the world. He compares those who live righteously and those who just fake righteousness. He compares those who trust and those who worry. Those who live for heaven, those who live for earth, those who walk the narrow path of life, and those who walk the broad path of destruction. In each of those, he is saying that there is an obvious and very undeniable difference between those who love Christ and those who don't. Now, at the end of this message, as he comes to the, the finish the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and really this is a place where many times when you preach you make your application, he kind of gives this sense of application where he says the evidence of this distinction, the evidence of loving the Lord versus not loving the Lord, is what he calls our fruit. Now let's read the passage. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, start in verse 15. 
Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now the Lord is, again, drawing a very sharp distinction, and notice that there's no middle ground here. He's drawing a sharp distinction between two groups of people. The first group of people is those who do not love the Lord and those who do not live for the Lord, even though they may represent themselves that way or even believe that they are. The second group of people is those who actually do love and live for the Lord, and it's shown through their lives. Now, that first group, the group that doesn't live for the Lord and doesn't love the Lord, has two types of people. One is that they are intentionally deceptive and dangerous to the cause of Christ because they are purposely misleading people about their convictions and they are teaching the wrong things. So within subgroup A, people who do not love the Lord, do not live for the Lord, there are people who are purposely damaging the work of Christ by saying, oh, I really do love the Lord, but they're teaching the wrong things. The second group within that is those who are unaware that they're really not living for the Lord, and they continue to kind of live in the false security of being a believer because they once prayed a prayer somewhere, but, but it has not shown any fruit in their lives, and their lives are, are basically devoid of righteousness. Now, Jesus is dealing specifically with that first group of people, in verse 15, he says, there are people who claim to be teachers of the word of God, but they are, in God's terms, false prophets. And one of the ways that we can know that they're false prophets is to go back two verses and look at verses 13 and 14. He says, one of the primary ways to know they're not representing the Lord or teaching the whole counsel of God is they're not teaching that the way that leads to life, the way of surrender and the way of sacrifice is a narrow way. In other words, false teaching says everybody gets in, everything is broad, do whatever you want, it's all wonderful, God will forgive you in the long run because he loves everybody and there are really no standards. He says that's not the way it works, the way to life is narrow, you have to really make sure that you stay on the path because there are pitfalls on every side. Now, we'll notice a second thought here is that even more sobering than that thought, which is scary enough, he says the goal of these false teachers, and this is in verse 15, is to devour the flock of God. In other words, this is not just innocuous false teaching. It's not just, well, we don't think that the Bible's right, and we don't think that it is narrow. We think the grace of God is much broader than that, and the salvation of God is is broader than that. It's not just that. There's an intentionality here that by teaching that, 
they will devour the flock of God. Now, before we go any further with that thought, and before we start to maybe even have names flood into our mind, we have to be very, very, very cautious in analyzing this thought. And we have to be very careful not to begin to make judgments based on our opinion or our biases. Because the enemy is very deceptive and he has the goal to divide the flock and turn people from the Lord by whatever means he can. So he will not hesitate at all to stoke our pride, to make unfair, biased conclusions about what other people might be thinking and about what they might be, what might be the intent of their heart as they're doing whatever they're doing. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He's the only one that can truly discern what's happening in somebody's head. So we have to be very careful as believers to, to avoid evaluating and judging the motives of other people. And yet at the same time, as we study God's word, and as we ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment and insight, not only about what we learn, but, but also how to know what teaching is of the Lord, as we do all that, God gives us a guideline here to know how to discern what is in alignment with his word and what is profitable for our teaching and correction and encouragement and training in righteousness. We're called in 1 John 4 to test the spirits. We're called to be wise and on guard against false teaching. And to do this, the spirit says there is one specific principle in verse 16 that will help you to know what is right. <coughs> he says, look at their fruits. I want you to notice what word you don't see. He doesn't say, look at their doctrine. Even though there are four main points of evaluation anytime somebody teaches the word of God. As the congregation of Harbor Rock Tabernacle, you are to hold me to the standard. You're to hold anybody that fills this pulpit to the standard. You're to hold anybody that we have commissioned to teach the word of God in this church to this standard. There are four main principles. Anytime somebody says, I'm now going to teach the word of God, that we are to use to determine if they have the right doctrine, the right motive. Let me give them to you very quickly. Number one, is the person who's teaching developing the text, staying true to the text, and drawing application from the text? Or are they teaching principles and using scripture to support the point? There's a big distinction there. In other words, does the application come from the text, or does the text is the text being used to support an application? Now that's an important difference because it all comes back to the text because that's what the Lord gave us. Our convictions, our teaching, our opinions, all of that doesn't matter one bit unless we've learned them from the Word of God. If I get up here and teach my opinion and then say, well, Scripture says this and this and I can support it, then I'm not teaching the whole counsel of God. I'm teaching what I think and finding a way to support it. Our goal as a church will always be to teach from the text because that's where doctrine comes from. Second, is the teacher handling God's word with humility and respect or being flippant and disrespectful? The Bible's not a joke. 
and it's not subjective and negotiable. The Israelites took that approach in the desert, and we know how that ended. The Holy Spirit says this book is designed, in the nicest terms I can put it, to do surgery on our souls. It's designed to cut away what is not pleasing to God, to cut away convictions that are wrong, to cut away beliefs that are damaging to our faith, and to get in there and do the work of making us healthy. And if it has to scrape out some stuff to get there, then so be it, because that's why he gave it to us. So the word has to be handled respectfully and with humility. Third, what's the emphasis of the teaching? Is it to know the Lord and love the Lord and worship the Lord and to come in subjection to the Lord? Or is it geared to our needs and to make us feel better with little understanding of personal sacrifice? Now that doesn't mean that every time I preach or every time somebody teaches that it has to be harsh and rigid. We know that God extends grace. We know that he encourages us. We know that he wants to strengthen us and help us. But Jesus says, there's a personal cost to following me. If you are not willing to forsake all, you can't be my disciple. So while we want to be encouraged and strengthened and have our needs addressed and have great application, we can't do that without saying there's a cost to this. There is a cost to following Christ. It is going to cost you something. It may cost you your comfort, may cost you your health, may cost you relationships, may cost you a job. I don't know. It's not always going to be a penalty. But there is a cost because we are different and called to be different and set apart from the world. Fourth, to what extent is the teacher calling people to spiritual maturity? To be Christ-like and yielded to the Spirit and be separate from the world. Because if you don't have those key components of the Christian walk, then it's just a pep talk. We can get pep talks anywhere. I can turn on Tony Robbins and get my pep talk and turn on Oprah, who's not on anymore, thank you, and hear that I just have to feel good about myself and blah, 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 blah. We're not here this morning for a pep talk, right? We're here this morning to hear what the Word of God says to us as it calls us to maturity. Now, all that being said, we're warned here about a danger within the flock. Look back at verse 15. The danger is that there are wolves posing as sheep, and they want to destroy the body of Christ, and they want to destroy individual believers. This is a deliberate and concerted attack by the enemy using people who pose as believers to undermine and devour the health of churches. And we all know and have watched that over the last 15, 20, 25 years that this has been a very effective strategy. The church has become weaker in its convictions and weaker in its doctrine and less effective in evangelism and believers are less inspired and our reputation as, a, as churches is not one of strength. And yet, not to be all negative this morning, I'm so encouraged and excited that there are churches that stand boldly for the Lord, that they're not concerned about being popular, they're not concerned about being approved by people that don't know Christ, they still love prayer, they still love the Word, they still love discipleship, and the Lord is richly blessing them. There are pastors of huge churches this morning, and there are pastors of tiny churches this morning, 
that are staying faithful to the Lord, even though they're discouraged and the Lord is helping them. A couple weeks ago, I was down at the Moody Pastors Conference and was able to hear um, Pastor Simbla's message down there. And at the end of the message, he was talking about the distinction of the church and that the, the preaching of the church should have fire to it. It should call believers to something. And at the end of the message, he was talking about how he had been so discouraged over times throughout his ministry and several times and almost quit. And at the end of the message, he called pastors forward. The room is full, Torrey Gray Auditorium down in Chicago. He called any pastors forward who were discouraged and were about to quit ministry. And they came by the dozens, weeping, kneeling, crying out to the Lord, having people intercede for them. Do you know that 90% of people that start into full-time ministry don't finish it? Today, 5,000 pastors will either quit or lose their jobs. It's remarkable what's happening and the discouragement that's out there. And I'll tell you personally, I've been there many times. And for the first time in my ministry, I can remember I didn't feel a need to go forward. It was so exciting. I thought the Lord is doing wonderful, magnificent things. But we can't take that for granted. Because the devil has a strategy to undermine this church, divide this church, divide our marriages, divide our relationships, divide everything. He doesn't want this church or any other church that preaches the gospel in this town to succeed. So he's warning us about that. And he calls us, look back at the text, he calls us in terms of our discernment and in terms of our how do we live to make sure that the fruit of our lives is fresh. Because as verse 17 says, Every good tree brings forth good fruit, and every corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. The word every there in the Greek means every. It means all. It means there are no exceptions, no exclusions. That every tree that's good will bear good fruit. Every tree that is corrupt will bear evil fruit. Psalm 1 says that the person who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water and yields fruit. But the wicked are not like that. So the Spirit is very clear. If our tree, if our lives are well-rooted in Christ and our complete desire is to live for the Lord, then healthy, strong fruit will be evident. But if the roots are shallow or not even dropping into the soil, there will be no fruit. And Jesus says, this is how you know where a person's heart is, by their fruit. Now, looks can be deceiving. But in the case of spiritual fruit, looks are actually revealing. A person can play the part of a disciple, but eventually their words, their actions, their fruit will reveal who they really are. That's why the Greeks used the word hypocrite to describe a person who's playing a part. It came from the theater. It was a person that had a mask, and they would use the mask, and they would act like somebody else. But that mask eventually has to come off, doesn't it? We can walk around and act the part and put on our suit. My, son, my, wife, my daughter told me this morning that I look harbory. Isn't that a great word? She said, your, your shirt looks like the water. 
I said, okay, that's a good word. You can use that. I can look the part this morning and look all nice and carry my Bible and sing and raise my hands. But if that doesn't carry through throughout the rest of the week, it's not going to matter. Then I become a hypocrite. I become somebody that just puts the mask up to my face and acts like this on Sunday and doesn't like that, act like that on Monday. And you know what? A mature believer can discern that. Not with arrogance and disgust and judging, but with a genuine love and care for the person. Over the past few weeks, some of you have come to me and said, you know, I'm concerned about this brother. Or I'm concerned about that sister. Something's going on there. They weren't saying, look at them. <laughs> I can't believe. No, they were saying, I'm really out of love. I'm very concerned. We need to do something. Because a mature person looks at the fruit, and the fruit is the distinguishing factor. Look at Jesus. He says in verse 19, be careful of this spiritual hypocrisy because the trees that aren't bearing fruit are going to be cut down and thrown in the fire. In other words, since there's no spiritual life in them, they're dead to the word, they're dead to the spirit, they're dead to works, they're dead to correction. Jesus says, I have no use for that. I know the tree by its fruit. If there's no fruit, if it's not blossoming, if it's dead, then I don't have any use for it. And he specifies that there's good fruit and there's corrupt fruit. In other words, not all fruit's the same. It's going to look different. It's going to act different. It's going to have a different usefulness. It has different health. And that's what the Spirit reminded me of Friday morning as I'm washing raspberries. Spirit speaks to you when you're washing raspberries, right? You just have to listen. He said there are five kinds of spiritual fruit. Physically, materially, there are five kinds of fruit. But there are also five kinds of spiritual fruit. And what we see in creation of the types of fruit and the way, kind of the stages of fruit, he says that also applies spiritually. As we come to a series on spiritual fruitfulness and examine how our lives are producing either good fruit or bad fruit, we need to understand the different stages. And then what we're all we're going to do this morning is say, where am I? Which kind am I? So take some notes. Let's write down the types of fruit that there are. We've got some visuals to help you, okay? Number one, unripe fruit. Unripe fruit. Unripe fruit is still hardened. It's inedible. It's not beautiful to look at. It's just kind of, ugh. you kind of look at it and you go, that's not ready yet. Now, unripe fruit still has the potential for change. It has the potential for softening, but there's also the real possibility that other factors will prevent it from getting right. Unripe fruit is what Jesus talked about in the gospel when he confronted people who refused to believe in the truth because their hearts were hardened. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, some walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Now listen to why there's ignorance in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. In other words, the inability to understand and accept the gospel is not because they don't get it. It's because they've chosen to be resistant and hardened toward the truth. And then he goes on and says, having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality 
for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What does that mean? It means that sensuality doesn't lead us to hardened hearts. Hardened hearts lead us to sensuality. Remember Flip Wilson? How many of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson? Oh, the devil made me do it. You remember that phrase? No, he didn't. He just provided the opportunity for you to act on a hardened heart. Now that goes for believers too, because I don't know about you, but I sinned this week. That's not because the temptation was so strong, because 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, there's no temptation undertaken by man that we can't escape from because God always provides a door. So the reason I sinned, the reason you sinned, is because there's something in our heart that's still hardened. Because if it wasn't hardened, we wouldn't be attracted to the sensuality or whatever the sin needs to be. He says they've become calloused and gave themselves over to sensuality, not the other way around. Now what the Spirit is telling us is that that picture right there, unripe fruit, is a person who's unaffected by what would change them, what would cause them to grow spiritually. The environment around them has what they need to be transformed from hardened to fresh, but they resist it. And that's the heart of every person without Christ, and it's why Christ came to offer us salvation, to move us from darkness to light, to move us from bondage to freedom. The tragedy is, and this literally should break our heart, the tragedy is that so many people are still unripe spiritually. The tragedy is that so many people refuse to accept the fact of God's love and mercy and the truth of Jesus Christ. I was looking at some article last night, I can't even remember what it was, and I went under the comments section, and, and the, the bitterness and the anger and the absolute refusal to even admit that there might be a possibility of a God and a God who would love them was shocking even to me. People that are trying to reason and just open the door. I can't remember what the article was about. It wasn't about spirituality, but they were just trying to open the door and, and there was just such venom coming forth from some people just dismissing everything. And I thought, that's the unripe fruit. And that should make us angry, and it shouldn't make us say, well, whatever. It should break us. But there are people that are callous toward the love of God. Now, there's a second kind of fruit, and this is ripe fruit. This is fruit that has been affected by what makes it grow, and it's ready to be gathered. It's a spiritual picture of those who are open to the gospel, whose hearts are are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but like the Ethiopian in the desert, they need somebody to run over to them and explain it to them. The ripe fruit is our call to evangelism, not only to share the hope that's within us that has changed our lives, but also to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit that when he brings someone close who needs to hear truth, that we will share it. I was in a conversation with a guy I couldn't remember for the life of me where it was or what I was doing. But we were just talking, and, and all of a sudden the Lord just prompted me and said, talk about me. No, that's not what we're talking about. You don't care. Talk about me. And I just injected the Lord in the conversation, just very 
freely. And I thought, this should be part of every conversation. It's not that hard once you do it. The guy wasn't looking for a sermon, and I didn't give him one. But I was able to talk about the Lord. And that feels foreign to us sometimes in our conversations because it's so much not a part of society's language. My encouragement to all of us, myself included, let's talk about the Lord. Let's name the name of Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to shy away from that. We've got his name. We're Christians, remember? So inject it in the conversation. The person looks at you funny, look back at them funny, and keep talking about the Lord. <laughs> Listen, with ripe fruit, there's urgency. One of the reasons I'm glad we're going to family camp later this year is because every year when we go to family camp, like the second week of August, it would be right when the fruit was about to be picked. And we get home, and it would be all yucky, and we think, we, we put all this effort, or my wife put all this effort, into planting this garden, and we get back, and it's, it's past its prime. Look at that picture. Look at the color of that berry. No, no, back, back, sorry. That's the next one. I want to get there yet. One of the things I've learned, because we have a, a huge raspberry bush in our yard that I love. One of the things I've learned about growing raspberries is you don't want to wait till they're really dark purple to pull them off. You want to get them when they're like that. Because if you wait too long, they'll drop off. Now, think about that because the spiritual principle is the same. We need to harvest and gather those who are primed to respond to the gospel before they get bumped and knocked in a different direction or before they get knocked off and picked by somebody else. Do you get what I'm saying? The enemy has plans too. There are other religions, there are other distractions, there are other people that want to redirect the thinking of that person who is ripe and inclined to respond to the gospel and ready to receive Christ. And we have to look at it and say, there's an opportunity, that person's ripe. Next Saturday, as we gather together, excuse me, next Sunday as we gather together, we're going to pray specifically for the summer Bible camp and for the kids that are going to be coming as ripe fruit to hear the truth. We may even next Saturday, I was thinking last night, we may take 10, 15, 20 minutes while we're cleaning and decorating to just stop and pray in that building on site for the kids that are going to be coming there. Because we have an opportunity. I'm telling you, there are thousands of of houses around that building. Thousands. And as we take a flyer out and we hand it to somebody, and we'd love for your kids to come. It's safe. It's wonderful. We'll have a great time. As we do that, there's ripe fruit just sitting all around us. And we can look at it and say, well, that's wonderful. I hope somebody comes along and picks that. Or we can say, that's an opportunity to share the gospel. Third type of fruit. Uh, go one more. I messed you up. There we go. That's dried fruit. Dried fruit. It's one of my least favorite things in life. From apple chips and banana chips to raisins. I don't like raisins. To those little dried bits of fruit that they put in the healthy cereal. I'm not talking about Apple Jacks here. I'm talking about, you know... Little bits and pieces that kind of stick in your teeth. 
You know what I don't like about dried fruit? Let me tell you my own personal bias here this morning. It's hard and it's tasteless. Because they have pulled all the moisture out of it. And when you pull all the moisture out of it, you pull all the life out of it. Seriously, think about it this morning. Which is more refreshing? A fresh, yummy, cold, purple grape. Or an old, nasty, warm raisin. Now, don't let my adjectives influence your opinion here, okay? A fresh banana, mmm, so good. But those nasty little banana chips, nobody makes banana chips for a living, right? Okay. I need to talk about banana chips for a minute. They taste like biting a nickel. Right? Am I right about this? Somebody give me an amen. amen. Thank you. I hear that amen. They're just not pleasing. I'm sorry if you like them. I don't. Even the color's different. Dried fruit's not bright. It's kind of dark and dull. And sometimes you can't even tell is that an apricot or a peach or a lemon. I don't know what it is. You can't distinguish it because the essential character is gone. Water is the key to fruit in its look and its flavor. I found a cool chart yesterday on the internet, and it said that every fruit other than a banana is at least 80% water. And it didn't surprise me that a watermelon is highest with 92%, but did you know that strawberries are 92% water? Now, what do we learn from our little science lesson? What we learn is, is that if you take the water out, listen now, this is a spiritual principle. If you take the water out, you change the fruit in almost every way. Now, water in scripture is associated with two things. It's associated with life, and it's associated with the Holy Spirit. We saw it in Psalm 1. Jesus himself said, I'm the living water. Baptism is a picture of our new life and the cleansing of sins. And I doubt that it's a coincidence that our bodies are about 60% water. You can live without food for weeks, but you cannot last more than three or four days without water because water is life. So dried fruit now is a picture of a religious person, maybe somebody that received Christ or made a prayer at some point or, or, or whatever, but a religious person who does not have the spirit in control of their lives. There is no life there's no spiritual vibrancy, there's no growth, there's no passion. There's just stagnation and fruitlessness. And revival is needed. The living water needs to rehydrate their soul so they can bear fruit again because they're dry. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had stages of my walk where I was dry. There was nothing uh, about it. There was nothing yay about it. It was just, ugh. it's that. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're dry spiritually. Maybe the life's just kind of been pulled out of you and you don't feel any joy and any vibrancy and any sense of life. Oh, you know the Lord and you've been in church and you've heard sermons and you gave your life at one point. You serve the Lord. But right now, you're dry. You got to get that water back in your life. You got to get the spirit back in control of your life. You've got to yield the hardness of your heart 
to Him and say, Lord, refresh me. Rain on me now. There's a fourth kind of fruit. This is the one we're not going to want to look at very long, but we're going to keep it up. This is moldy fruit. Mmm, tasty. I'd rather have the dry fruit than that. Moldy fruit is mushy and gross. There's nothing desirable or pleasing about it. And it's even worse when you grab a handful of fruit and you get one little moldy piece in there. You ever had that happen? That, that actually describes a lot of churches. A couple pieces of moldy fruit. Now there are two main thoughts here about why mold attaches to fruit. The first is that if fruit is unused, or it stays on the vine too long, or it sits on the counter without being taken care of, listen now, the lack of movement creates an opportunity for infection. The fruit gets soft and it loses its sweetness because it just sat there and did nothing. The spiritual parallel is obvious. Jesus called us to action and to growth. He did not call us to sit and soak and be stagnant as we await his return. Every believer should be active for the work of the kingdom. I love this. I love that list. Because that's our body being active for the work of the kingdom. And I want to say we've got to keep it up. Even if it's just to pray for this summer camp, pray for it. If you can't work, make it, that's fine. I know we have jobs. I know many work during the day. That's fine. Just pray. Or donate. Somebody give us three deer heads this week to put up so we'll look like a lodge. What a gift that was. Didn't have to do that. Some of you are teaching. Some of you are preparing. Some of you are leading worship. Some of you are pouring lemonade. Some of you are playing games with the kids. Some of you are just greeting or helping with parking or whatever. Everybody does something. So we don't just kind of sit and say, well, I got my filling this week, got my hour and a half, and I took communion, and that was great, and now I'm going to do what I want. Listen, Christ never called us to that. He called us to action. Go into the world and preach the gospel. Don't wait for the world to come to you. You go. Second, about the mold is raspberries in particular are prone to a certain type of fungus that sets in quickly and it spreads to the other fruit near it. So the reason fruit gets moldy is because it's affected by its environment. Now that illustrates a very important point. And we need to say this out loud so we don't dismiss it in any way. The point is that there is no way we can approve of, allow, and participate in what is of the world and doesn't make us like Christ and not be greatly affected by it. Let me say it again in a different way. There's no way you can be in the world and not be of the world. We are called as believers, as hard as it is to hear, to be separate. This is not a matter of legalism. It's not a matter of trying to justify that, oh, I have freedom and I can do what I want. This is a matter of what protects our reputation and fosters spiritual growth and makes us holy. Spiritual mold sets in because the heart and mind get softened and corrupted by weakened conviction and because we get closer and closer to the world 
and it appeals to us, and we don't put up resistance, and pretty soon the mold spreads to us. It's like watching a banana ripen. What happens to an overripe banana? What color does it get? Tell me. Black. That's spiritual. Because when we don't protect ourselves and we just sit there, we get very unpleasant and very unusable, and pretty soon the darkness starts to come on to us. I believe that's the type of person, look at verses 21 to 23, that's the type of person Jesus is describing. Some of the most sobering verses in the Bible. He says there will be people that say, but Lord, I served you, and, and Lord, I worked for you, and, and, and Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. I don't even recognize you. You claim you're mine, where's the fruit? Now that's harsh, and that's hard, and it's difficult, but that is Scripture. That's the words of our Savior. He says, if you're moldy, if you're dry, you're not useful to me. Look at the last kind of fruit. This is fresh fruit. Look at the difference of that picture. Can you go back to the last one for a second? Or two ago, I'm sorry. Had them out of order. There's the moldy. That looks tasty, doesn't it? There's the fresh. As Randy said to me last night, we talked on the phone. He said, that makes me want to go buy some raspberries. Fresh fruit. Mature, sweet, vibrant, rich in taste, moist with life. Look, that's what we're supposed to look like spiritually. That's what we're supposed to look like personally and emotionally and intellectually and relationally and socially. That's what we're supposed to look like when we're by ourselves. That's what we're supposed to look like with, with our family and our friends, when we're around our neighbors, when we're at our jobs, when we're here at church, when we're on Facebook, when we're on vacation, everything else, we're supposed to look like that all the time. No mold, no dryness, no green, no black, nothing. We're supposed to show evidence that we are on the vine, that we're moving to Christ-likeness, and we're moving on to full maturity. Now, let me just give you a little snippet because I need to be done. There are two realities about fresh fruit. With this, we're finished. Two realities about fresh fruit. One is it needs to be used right away, which means that it's important that we are continually progressing in our faith and serving the Lord. And yes, I get it. Life is flying by. It is already June. How can that be? I feel like I just celebrated Christmas. It's already June, and life is flying by, and we feel like we need a break. But as we've said before, the fields are ripe, and the days are short. And our Lord is good and faithful to conform us to his image by the power of his Holy Spirit. We need to be used right away and continually. The other reality about fresh fruit is that fresh fruit always bears more fruit. You plant moldy fruit, not going to do anything. You plant dry fruit, not going to produce anything. You plant unripe fruit, not going to do anything. But you plant fresh fruit, and it will reseed and regerminate. You know, God said, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. That wasn't just a principle of having kids. That's a spiritual principle. 
If you are fruitful, your life will multiply. There will be an effectiveness of your character and your ministry for the Lord. Moldy fruit is not productive, and dry fruit won't produce any more fruit. But fresh fruit is alive, and it has seeds that create more fruit. Which is the great joy and the great privilege of being one of the body of Christ. As God helps us and puts his calling on us. I'm done. Which of the five kinds of fruit are you today? I don't ask you that to draw you forward for a decision or to do anything. That question is just going to hang out there for the next week. And we'll come back and study more. We have a lot more to study. But listen, don't be distracted now. Give me one more second. This is an important question that is the foundation for everything else. What kind of fruit? Let's go before the Lord this week and ask him to reveal to us, Lord, how healthy am I? How much fruit am I bearing? And how can I be more effective for you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the simplicity of the principle that we see every day all around us in your creation. The concept of fruit. But Father, we pray this morning and this week that you would reveal to us the health of our fruit and the extent of our fruit and the effectiveness of our fruit. Because Lord, you have called us to a great calling and you have changed our lives so that we can bear fruit. So Lord, I ask that you would remove from my own life and for the lives of my brothers and sisters here anything that's dry, anything that's moldy, anything that's hardened in our lives that would prevent us from bearing fresh, good fruit. We thank you this morning that we are grafted into the vine that is Christ, that you give us life and you sustain us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you're providing incredible opportunities for us as believers and as a church to be able to reproduce and to see the fruit that is ripe out there waiting for your gospel, waiting for your salvation. Lord, I think of all those kids that will be coming to this kid's Bible camp. Father, prepare their hearts now, even as we go out and walk the neighborhoods next Saturday Prepare their hearts for what's coming. And Lord, we will give you so much praise and so much glory when we see their lives changed. Father, bless us and help us this week. We submit our lives to you and ask you to work in a very powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.